Turn your Bible, please, to Revelation, the book of Revelation. We had a wonderful time this morning studying James, and again tomorrow morning we'll be studying the book of James, and I hope you'll come. James, tomorrow morning, James chapter 2, the perfect man and service. This morning, the perfect man and suffering. Now, when we talk about perfect, we're not talking about somebody that is sinless, but the scripture says that we may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, that we may grow unto Christ's likeness. And the word perfect really means mature. So it's what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. The mature man and service. The next morning, the mature man and speech. Probably nobody will come that day. It's about the tongue. And the next day, uh, the, the mature man and uh, separation from the world unto God. And the last, uh, on the fifth chapter, separation, or, or rather the, practic the, per the, the perfect man and the second coming of Jesus. How do we behave in light of the second coming of Christ? And that's in James chapter 5. Now tomorrow night, I want to bring part two of the message I'm going to start tonight. So I'll tell you in advance. Jesus' last message to the church. I, I thought I'd be able to bring that whole message tonight, but I'm going to bring it in two parts. Then on Thursday night, the songs they sing in heaven. That's Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Tonight, part one, Jesus' last message to his church, found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Let's bow together in prayer, please. Everyone with our heads bowed in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the excitement and the blessing that we've already sensed in singing these precious songs, in hearing the sermon in song, and in just the gathering together of God's people. We pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts tonight and do his office work of conviction. And that one who is closest to eternity, who is not ready, may he turn to Christ by the, by the love bands of the Holy Spirit drawing him. And Father, may every believer here tonight be encouraged to go deeper with God and to go back to our first love. In Jesus' name, amen. In Revelation chapter 2, I'd like to read the first seven verses. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth in the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from where thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
Now, the book of Revelation is the book of the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is not a closed, hidden book. It is rather a book that Jesus gave to John to signify or symbolize those things which must shortly come to pass. The outline of the book of Revelation is in chapter 1, verse 19. John, Jesus said, John, write the things which you've seen. That's chapter 1. We talked about that last night. Seeing beyond the symbols. Write that which you've seen. Secondly, write that those things which are. And if I understand this book correctly, this has to do with chapters 2 and 3, the church age, the seven churches. And then thirdly, write those things which shall be or which are to come to pass. And that begins in chapter 4 and stretches on through chapter 22. We'll be discussing that later in the week. In this first chapter, we learned last night that this is the only book in the entire Bible where there's a blessing promised for somebody who just reads it, whether we understand it or not. Blessed is he that readeth. Why do God's people keep the book closed when it's the only book with that promise, blessed is he that readeth. And so we need to read this book. God has a message for our age, just as he has had a message for the age in all the ages through this book of Revelation. But all too often, God's people make it a closed book, and we're afraid to get into it. Let's open it, search its deep things, find out its prophecies, believe what it says, and prepare for what is to come on the basis of what God has said. Last night, we talked about that vision of Jesus. And John saw that wonderful vision of Jesus. And Jesus said, now you write that. And write beyond those symbols, the wool, the wool white hair, and the, the feet that are burnished brass. What does all that mean? And we discussed that last night. And then Jesus said, now you write the things which are. This has to do with the seven churches which are in Asia, chapters 2 and 3. And those seven churches have, three, have a threefold purpose and meaning. And we need to understand these things. First of all, those were real churches in the day in which John wrote and lived. They were really churches there, just like the Little West Fork Baptist Church, just like the Glendale Baptist Church. That was, those were real churches. There was a church at Ephesus. There was a church at Smyrna. There was a church at Thyatira. There was a church at Pergamos. There was a church at Sardis. There was a church at uh, Laodicea and Philadelphia and so on. Those were real churches. Now, we're not to think that those were the only churches in those days. Those were just seven representative churches. And those churches represented, in those churches, there were represented the problems that were already seeping into the church in the Christian movement in the day in which John lived. So first of all, we remember they were real churches. Secondly, those churches were to be representative churches throughout all the ages. They were to represent church ages down till the end time. The first church was the church at Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. The last church was the church at Laodicea, 
which was the lukewarm church, neither hot nor cold. And Jesus said, I'll spew it out of my mouth. Every one of the churches stands for a specific age in church history. There are many who believe that we're still living in the Philadelphia age, the church with the open door. But many other Bible students who dig deeply into the word and are observant of the times in which we live believe these are the closing days. These are the Laodicean days, the day when the church is neither hot nor cold. It is lukewarm. Jesus said, I'll spew it out of my mouth. And so these churches are representative churches in all the ages or representative of the church ages. Thirdly, these churches are to be, we are to remember that in every age there were churches just like these. And that's true today. For example, there are churches today who have left their first love. There are churches today who are under suffering like the Smyrna church, terrible persecution. Last Sunday night, we had Brother Varanoff, who was from Russia, and he told us about the persecuted church in Russia. He told us how he had spent many years in a Siberian prison and how there were perhaps 25,000 God's people and preachers right this moment in the prison camps of Russia. No matter, no telling how many in Albania, in Bulgaria, in Romania, and of course maybe in China, and in Cuba and the other communist countries. There are churches today like the Philadelphia Church, a church that is wide open, a church with the open door, a church that is building and reaching people. As a matter of fact, there are probably more soul-winning churches in 1983 than there ever have been in the entire history of Christendom. There are great soul-winning churches. First Baptist Church in Dallas, the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, the First Baptist Church in Atlanta, or in Atlanta, the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, the First Baptist Church in Hammond, the Thomas Road Baptist Church in, uh, in Virginia, and on and on we could go. I think we could add to it the Little West Fork Baptist Church because you have a tremendous soul-winning missionary ministry reaching the military people who in turn go out to reach hundreds of people all around the world. There are churches in every age like that, and there are churches today. There are also churches today who are like the Laodicean church, who have left their first love. They're neither hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. Now tonight, I want to focus on this first church. Tomorrow night, the other churches. But the first church, the church which is at Ephesus. Notice what Jesus says. I want, John, I want you to write to the church that, that is at Ephesus. Now there's something important to remember about this church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the light of Asia. That Ephesian, that city of Ephesus was a tremendously important city in all of Asia. It had a population of 225,000 people. It was a large city. It was the commercial center of Asia. It had in it the temple of Diana. It was a religious center of Asia. Paul founded that church at Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. Timothy was with him. There is a 
there's a, a legend or a tradition that says not only did Paul found that church and later Timothy served there, there is a tradition that Timothy was martyred in the city of Ephesus. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God. And after he came back from Patmos, he came to the city of Ephesus and there he served as pastor emeritus. Now it's that church. And Jesus is saying, John, I want you to write to that church. That's the church Paul founded. That's that city where Paul went and there was a riot because they thought Paul was trying to tear down the temple of Diana. You remember in the book of Acts. A whole book was written to the letter to the Ephesian Christians. Now, Jesus says, I want you to write to this church. And notice some things. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them who, who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. You have borne, you have had patience, and for my name's sake you have labored and hast not fainted. Jesus says, John, I want you to write over there and encourage them. Isn't it wonderful how the Lord encourages us? Have you ever been discouraged and needed some encouragement? You went to church and all the preacher did was discourage you. I get convicted of that sometimes. I believe that the preacher needs to have, be a man of consolation like Barnabas was and somehow encourage the people at the same time bring God's pointed message. And Jesus said, now John, before you let them have it, I want you to encourage them a little bit and tell them that I appreciate what they're doing. I know their works. I know their labor of love. I know their patience. I know they've, they've tried people who say they're apostles and are not. They are orthodox through and through. They're conservative. They believe in the verbal inspiration of the scripture. I have some good things going for them. I want you to tell them, John, and encourage them a little bit. Get them ready for the kill. <laughs> now, John said, Jesus says, now, John, before they get all puffed up with pride, I want you to let them know something else. I have somewhat against you. And in very simple words, because thou hast left thy first love. You've left the first love. Oh, you're serving. You have wonderful services. You have great music. You do a lot. You have mission trips. You have visitation. You do a lot of things. You go through the motions of it. Deep down in your heart, you've left your first love. What is the first love of the church? The thing that's closest to the heart of Jesus. Souls. The first love of the church, listen. It has to be Jesus. He's the one we love. He's the one we love. Fairer is he than the lily to me. He's the one we love. It's possible to go through all the motions of being an effective, live, wide-awake church and somehow not do it as unto Jesus. And Jesus says, John, tell them about it. They've got some good things going, but they've left their first love, Jesus. Jesus first. 
others second, yourself last, and you know what that spells? Three things. First of all, it spells joy, J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. But secondly, it spells bringing others to Christ because you can't possibly be filled with joy and put Jesus first without it being contagious. And thirdly, that why is going to stand for a yearning in your hearts, a desire in your hearts, a yieldedness in your heart to do the will of God, whatever the cost. When Jesus first built his church, it was literally a flame of fire. They took seriously that passage in Psalm. He maketh his ministers, his angel spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Those early disciples were literally filled with the flame, the power, the love of the Holy Spirit. The message that Jesus gave to his church before he went back was, Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Preach the gospel to every creature. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. Ye shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and under the parts of the earth. Paul took up that same refrain when he said, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And, and Paul was able to say to those Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, I held back nothing. I am free from the blood of all men. I have stopped, not stopped day or night. And all of Ephesus has been evangelized. And all of Asia has been evangelized. And I've gone and gone and gone. And I'm free from the blood of all men. In obedience to what Jesus said for them to do. But before John wrote Revelation, something had begun to happen. The love of many was beginning to wax a little bit cold. Jesus said, John, I want you to remind them. That's the church Paul started. That's the church that had the great oracles of God. That's the church that really believed something. That's the church that was ablaze on fire for God. But they left their first love. What does that say to us? What does that say to church where I serve, your church, church is represented here tonight. It's possible for us to go through all the motions and yet not really do it unto Jesus. And oh my friend, the burden of my heart tonight is to plead with us for three reasons to do what this scripture says. Repent, or else I will come and remove your candlestick. Repent. And that message was not to the lost world. The only way a lost person can ever be saved is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, there's only one way to Christ, and that is repentance toward God, turning away from sin and turning to Christ. But Repentance is also a doctrine for Christians. It is doctrines for, for God's people. And I want to encourage us tonight, as God's people called by his name, 
to do what this banner says, to do what the Bible says, to do what the song says, to do what the Holy Spirit says, to do what God's Word is here saying. If you've left your first love individually, if you've left your first love as a Sunday school class, if you've left your first love as a deacon, if you've left your first love as a Sunday school teacher, if you've left your first love as a preacher, if you've left your first love as church, repent. Repent. You can get by with it for a while and nobody will know it. But not for long. Because I'll remove your candlestick. That's what he said. Oh, May God speak to us for just a few moments and may encourage us to repent. First of all, because of the crisis days in which we live. We live in tragic, difficult days. Jesus said it would be like this. The scripture tells us in 2 Timothy, knowing this, that the time in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power of it. From such, turn away. Because of the crisis days in which we live when men's hearts are turning away from God and humanism and secularism and lawlessness are all about us and we could spend hours tonight talking about the lawlessness of the world but the thing that breaks God's heart is the lawlessness of God's people. My people called by my name indulging in the same sins that the world indulges in. sins of the flesh, sins of the spirit over in the book of Galatians. Listen to this. For the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, wrath, factions, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. God's people emulating the world in the debauchery of sin. The world has become influenced by the church. And we say, thank God. Thank God. But listen, the church has become influenced by the world. And most of the outsiders can't tell the difference. We've heard, well, you just live your Christian faith and people will come to you and they'll want to know how to be saved. The unsaved world aren't that smart because there are people living a borrowed morality inside putrefying sores, inside adulteries, inside fornications, inside dead men's bones. 
but on the outside, an apparent godly life. And they don't know they need Jesus unless we are filled with God's Holy Spirit having put aside these things, having put down, mortified those things in the flesh and are alive unto Christ, filled with His Spirit so that there's a glow about us. Moses went up on Sinai. He was with the Lord for 40 days. God gave him the very oracles when he came back down the side of the hill. You remember what happened? His face glowed. He didn't even know it. And the people were afraid. And he had to put a veil over his face before he could have an entrance to the people. You and I need to get alone with God so that there's a glow, an effervescent glow. It may not be the same kind of glow Moses had. And we may not have to go around with handkerchiefs over our face. But we need to be filled with God's Holy Ghost. We need to be so possessed with the Lord that there'll be no question who our first love is. Is our first love television or Jesus? Is our first love the movie or Jesus? Is our first love alcohol or Jesus? Is our first love our job or Jesus? Is our first love our family or Jesus? Is our first love being accepted by society or Jesus? You've left your first love, Jesus said to that church. And because of the crisis days in which we live, I would appeal to you to repent of that. If any of us in his own heart, not just a church corporately, but individual believers tonight, if we sense in any sense that we've left our first love, let's turn back. Here's a good test. Was there ever a time you loved Jesus more than you love him now? Was there ever a time when it was easier for you to sacrifice for Christ Jesus than it is tonight? The Florida Baptist Convention put a little folder out. I like it. It says, Checklist for Personal Revival. Listen to this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Matthew 6, 12. Jesus is talking about this. I want to ask you, is there anyone against whom you hold a grudge? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is there anything in which you have failed to put God first? Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Have you failed to witness consistently for the Lord Jesus? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you have love one for another. Are you secretly pleased over the misfortunes of another? Are you secretly annoyed over the accomplishments or advancements of another? Acts 20, 35. You ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you robbed God by withholding his due of time, talents, and money? 1 Corinthians 4, 2. More of it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Are you irresponsible so that you cannot be trusted with the responsibilities of the Lord's work? 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Are you in any way careless with your body? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do you take the slightest credit for anything good about you rather than giving all the glory to God? Listen. Listen. Is Jesus speaking to you tonight? John, write to my people my last message. Oh, I want them to go. I want them to go and tell. I want them to let others know that they need, the others need Jesus. But, but wait a minute, John. You, you tell them for me. They've left their first love. And their witness isn't going to be very effective very long. Secondly, I want to ask you tonight to repent. To turn back to our first love. Not only because of the crisis times in which we live, but because of the terrible cost of men are lost. This book says in Psalm 9:17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Hell is real. Jesus gave a little band of disciples witnessing power and he said, go into all the world and warn. Be as a watchman to the house of Israel. Be as a watchman to the house of the world. Warn. There's a hell to shun. There's a heaven to gain. The wicked shall be turned into hell. I wonder if we believe in hell. Now somebody said, if there were no hell and no heaven, the Christian life would still be worth living. I, I'm sure that's true. But I don't want conjecture in those areas because, beloved, the Bible says there is a hell. There is a heaven. And some people in this room tonight are on their way to hell. And some people that you'll meet tomorrow on the streets or at the post or in school are on their way to hell. They're lost. They're going to be separated from God forever and forever and forever. Jesus gave to the believers his love so that there could be a warmth and an attraction and a fire that would draw people to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not to us but to him. And the reason Jesus said, John, you go tell my people that they've left their first love is because I have no other plan. And if my people called by my name fail me, I don't have any other plan. The only way the lost world will ever know about a hell and a heaven and a savior and a love of God and a rescue is for God's people to be filled with God's love. And so because of the terrible cost that men are lost. I want to appeal to you tonight to repent. Go back to our first love. I asked Jesus to give me more of an understanding of what hell was like. Don't ever ask something if you don't want it. Several years ago, I was witnessing to a man named Will Stubblefield. He was an old man. He was in his 80s. He was over at the hospital in Bowling Green. His family had asked me to go and see him. He had had a stroke. He couldn't talk. When I talked with him, he just stared into the, into the ceiling. The doctor had told me that 
they thought he could hear. They thought he could understand what we were saying. But he couldn't respond. He was just looking. And he kept his eyes open all day. Every time I was by there, his eyes were open, just staring into the ceiling. And I'd stand by his bedside, and I'd, I'd give him the word of God and tell him the best way I knew how, how to give his heart to Jesus and how to be saved and how to repent of sin. His family said he had never been saved. Never any response. My heart was deeply burdened for him. And one night, I knelt before I went to bed, and I said, Lord, help Will Stubblefield. I just want him to be saved. And Lord, burden my heart in such a way that I'll understand more of what he's facing and of the tragedy of hell. In my sleep, the telephone rang. There was a nurse. She said, Will Stubblefield has died. And they've taken him over to the funeral home and they've asked you to go over there. I got up. I went over to the funeral home. I stood by the casket. The funeral director was there. And I looked down in the face of that man I'd witnessed to many, many times. My heart was burdened and hurt. The funeral director went out of the room. And as I stood looking down on that dead man's face, suddenly his arms began to twitch. And his face began to writhe in pain. And he began to move and squirm just as if he were in terrible pain. And I called the undertaker. I said, come quickly, something's wrong. And he came back in. I said, look, I, I thought death erased all that pain. And the funeral director looked at me with terrific insight and he said, preacher, there is some pain that death does not erase. I woke up. It was still in the night. I got out of my bed, dressed. I went back to the hospital in the middle of the night. I stood by that man's bed. His eyes were opened, looking into the ceiling. I said, Will Stubblefield, God told me about you a little while ago. You're not going to live long, and you're on your way to hell. And Will Stoberfield, Jesus wants to save you. He loves you. And I gave him John 3.16. And I took his hand and I said, Brother Will, I can't stand to see you lost. I can't stand to see you go to hell. I beg you right now, in your heart, just simply pray what I pray. Invite Christ into your heart. And I prayed with him. And I said, will you pray this prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, I call on you to come into my heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. I said, now, Will, if you heard me, and if you're willing to give your heart to Jesus tonight, I know it'll be hard, but I want you to clasp your hand on mine as hard as you can and I waited and his hand began to clasp on mine and his eyes that had always been fixed on the ceiling turned to mine and tears began to trickle down his cheeks I believe it was the 11th hour 
the next day he went out into eternity. My friend, hell is real. God told me that. His book says that. The damned in hell know that. And because of the terrible cost of men should be lost, I want to ask those who are God's people tonight, all of us, to come back to our first love and say, Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. Lastly, I want to ask us to come back to that first love, repenting of our folly, repenting of our carelessness, repenting of our foolishness, repenting of our jesting, repenting of anything that has gotten between my soul and the Savior. No matter what it is, it can be ever so little. I have a little quarter in my hand. I hold it out there and I can see everybody here. I bring that quarter a little bit closer and some people are beginning to be blocked out. I close this eye and there are some folks I can't see because this quarter's in the way. 